You're listening to Studentaftonpodden, a collaboration between Studentafton and Radio AF. Tonight, Robbie Damelin and Bassam Aramin from the organization Parents Circle Families Forum in a talk about peace through reconciliation in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Good evening. I'm a Palestinian, and this is not my uh, guilt because I find myself as a Palestinian, which is very difficult to be a Palestinian. As you hear, I lost my 10 years old daughter, Abir, to an Israeli border police in 2007. But this is not my job, to be a bereaved father. My job is to be a peace activist. Two years before I lost my daughter, I'm a co-founder of Combatants for Peace which is ex-Israeli soldiers and officers who refused to take part of the occupation to serve in the occupied territories because they discovered that it's illegal and it's immoral occupation and they create more enemies in the Palestinian side. And for us, the Palestinian side, we are people who spend many years from their life in the Israeli jails. We resist the occupation, we fought the occupation to free ourselves, to free our land. Like me, I spent seven years in the Israeli jails when I was 17 years old for resistance against the occupation. At the age of 13, with other four kids, we create local military group, we call it, and our mission was to raise the Palestinian flag because we noticed that the Israeli soldiers became crazy when they see this flag, so we want to make them crazy. This is how it starts as a game. But the Israeli soldiers teach us how to hate them from their behavior, from their brutality. So we think that you have no choice, you have no safe place for yourself, and you need to fight those people. When I say people, I mean the soldiers. The Israeli people or the Jewish people in that time is the Israeli soldiers and settlers, which is very violent, and in jail, our jailers. We never met the normal Israelis. So it's very easy to become a fighter or a warrior. In other words, we lose our childhood. It's not a normal thing to think that you are a fighter or you want to fight at the age of 13. Can you imagine to be a victim to the situation without understanding, without knowing? At the age of 16, we find some old weapons uh, with two grenades and a Kalashnikov. Two of my group used the two grenades and the Kalashnikov against the Israeli patrols in our village in that time. And of course, no one killed, no one injured, because we don't know how to use it in a professional way. At the age of 17, we have been arrested, and I sentenced for seven years. Now, it's not anymore a game. You are in jail, you are a hero, you are a warrior, and you are proud of yourself, you justify what you are doing. When you meet yourself, you understand that I am not a warrior. I am not a militant. It starts as a game then you start to understand who are you as Palestinians and who are those people, the Israelis, why they came to occupy us. In jail, I learn if you know your enemy, you can defeat him. If you just hate him, you will kill yourself. And because my enemy speaks Hebrew, so I start to study Hebrew because I want to kill my enemy and not to kill myself. I watch a movie about the Holocaust in jail. Uh, I want to enjoy seeing this movie as kind of revenge to see someone torture those Jews, kill them, at least to see a movie, because I'm in their jail, because they torture me, because they're occupying me. And after a few minutes, I found myself crying, get sympathy with those innocent people. You can imagine it's very difficult for me, because I don't believe that there are human beings on earth can do the same to other human beings. I tried to convince myself it's just a movie, but it was very difficult for me. It was a very painful movie because, uh, according to my culture as an Arab man, according to my religion as a Muslim, to see women's uh, naked, which is very painful. I start to hide my tears from other prisoners because no one will understand that you are crying for our enemies, for our oppressors. It takes a long time to understand the reality of the Holocaust because for us, it's a big lie. We don't believe in the Holocaust because we don't know anything about it. It's the opposite. We became the victims of the Holocaust too. We became the victim of the victims, even not to know anything about this crime. 
So at uh, 2011, I finished my master's degree about the Holocaust in UK in order to understand more about the Holocaust. And for me, it was a mission to teach the Holocaust to the Palestinians to understand what's the meaning of fear. It's ongoing fear. It's a deep fear in the Jewish mentality and the Israeli, especially the Israeli mentality. And we need to understand that. In jail, we don't talk to each other. We just hate each other. Uh, for us, they are our jailers, so we don't need anyone to educate us to hate them. And for them, we are killers, terrorists, uh, and they are not allowed to talk to us. Uh, once I have dialogue with my jailer, he wants to convince me that we are settlers, we are occupiers, and we are killers, the Palestinians. Uh, so in that time, I get crazy. I said, you are the occupiers, you are the, the settlers. Briefly, I believe that he believed that we are settlers and killers, and he wants to understand which kind of education we have to hate the Jewish people and the Israelis. I said to him in that time, you know, I have a long seven years. Maybe we are settlers. I don't know. Let us talk. And we start to talk. A few months later, we became a very close friends. He understands that we are not killers. We are not settlers. He changed his mind, and he understands that we are just kids and the occupation create from us enemies or fighters. To understand how the Israelis treat us in jails, it's the only democracy in the Middle East with the most moral army on earth. In the 1st of October 1987, we were in one section, 120 prisoners, from the age of 12 to 19 years old, uh, waiting for our lunch. Suddenly we hear this alarm. More than 100 soldiers enter to our section. They stand in two lines. They enter to each room, take off our clothes. You need to go back to the corridor and they will beat you from both sides until we reach a square like this. In that day, when it's come to me, I look in front of me, I see the old people without clothes. And suddenly I remember the movie that I saw a few months ago because everyone was without clothes. And I remember I get very angry for those people in the movie because they didn't resist. They didn't do anything. So I start to shout in Arabic, in Hebrew, in English against them. They continue beating me. And in the end of the corridor, six soldiers take me aside and they start to beat me again. And in the middle of that, someone came and lay on me to protect me with his body. And this was my jailer, which was very dangerous for him. And he told them that he have a problem in his heart and he will die, and you will be responsible for that. So he hide me a few minutes until they leave and take me back to my room. In the evening, when I asked the officer, like, why? What happened? He said it was a special unit from the Israeli army, and they were in a training mission. Okay. From this training mission, I remember a kid, he was 12 and a half years old. His name is Walid Sbeh from Bethlehem area. In the second intifada, I watch his, I see his uh, uh, photo in Bethlehem as the leader, Walid Sbeh, a leader in the Palestinian resistance. He became a fighter, and this was expected. I can tell you about tens of these events. So in general, their goal is to kill our humanity, and our goal is to survive, and to keep our humanity, and to take our revenge, because no one to talk to, and in other words, you just became more determined to continue your armed struggle against this brutal enemy. So I get released in 1992. I still believe in armed struggle. The year before 91, we have Madrid Conference for Peace in the Middle East between the Arab states and Israel. And PLO, you know PLO? Because it was under the Jordanian umbrella, so we think nothing will come from it. Two years later, in uh, uh, 1993, it was Oslo Agreement between Israel and PLO. PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, exactly what you hear now about Hamas, it's the same. Killers, terrorists, want to destroy Israel, want to throw Jews in the sea, the same. And in one day, they became freedom fighters, and they became partners for peace. So everything is politics. When we decide to make peace, there is a way. Uh, in 1994, I decide not to use and not to support armed struggle because it doesn't work. More than 100 years, we are fighting each other, we are killing each other, and the result, Israel is not safe. Palestine is not free. More blood, more victims, more pain, every day. 
then I decide that we need to change our way to achieve our goal. What is our goal as Palestinians? We never change it and we will never change it. It's to end the Israeli occupation. This is our common occupation, Israelis and Palestinians. As long as the occupation continue, we will continue fighting. We will never accept it. So I, I think in that time, we need to change our way to achieve our goal, which is ending the occupation. I believe that in that time, the Israelis must be responsible for their occupation. The occupation for them, for their security, for their benefits. And we are going to kill them because of this occupation. So if they want to live in peace and security, they must come and join us against the occupation. Then they will know what's the meaning of security. Then I start to be active in my society without any connection with the Israelis. In 2002, I hear in the Israeli media about the refuseniks, which is ex-Israeli soldiers and officers, as I told you. Uh, we meet each other in 2005, and we create combatants for peace. And you can imagine the first meeting between the real enemies. We know each other. We hate each other. We do our best to kill each other from both sides, but to achieve the same thing, peace and security. Of course, each one from his point of view, they are occupiers. We are under the occupation. But the result, we are dying, both of us. We are killing each other. So we decide to join our forces and to let down our weapons, and we start to talk. Our slogan was, if you want to make peace with your enemy, you need to work with your enemy. Then he became your partner. This is what Nelson Mandela says. So we understand that we are not friends, we are not brothers, we are not relatives, we are real enemies, but our goal is to be partners. And if you need to work, it's not only to talk to your partner, you need to trust your partner, which is a very difficult thing to achieve between enemies. In the way, if we became friends or brothers, it's much better, but this is not our goal. Uh, it means we can make peace without loving each other. In the first year, we became 300 members from both sides, all of them ex-fighters. Today, we are around 700 members. So, two years, I was very active in this movement. I found myself in this movement. It's like my baby and my father. And I get to try to understand the Israelis, the other side, those soldiers, how they receive, how they receive us as soldiers. It's very complicated. When I was young, I thought that it's a punishment from God to be a Muslim or a Palestinian, live under the Israeli occupation. When I study a little bit about the Jewish history, no, it's much better to be a Palestinian than to be a Jew or an Israeli. Because I'm not holding on my shoulders 3,000 years of slavery and victimhood and discrimination and racism and the Holocaust, which is very complicated. For those soldiers, we are less than human beings because we are a threat, according to them, and it's not a crime to kill a Palestinian. It's not written anywhere, but you will never find an Israeli soldier be punished because he killed a Palestinian. Never. It didn't happen until today. If you live in Palestine and Israel, unfortunately, you are not safe, even if you are a peacemaker. So in the 16th of January 2007, I lost my 10 years old daughter Abir to an Israeli border police in a normal day from a distance of 15 to 20 meters in her head from the back. Uh, the soldier was around 19 and a half or 18. He also a kid. But I want to understand why. It's an open question forever. You will never understand why. It's very easy to kill because there is no punishment. It's the opposite. Always I said one Israeli soldier shoot and kill my daughter, but more than 100 ex-Israeli soldiers and officers from combatants for peace, they built Abir's garden, her school, and her memory together uh, to show the local community that we can work together. And it's up to you how to use your pain for more blood, for more revenge, or to build more bridge. In fact, even to kill the rest of the world, it's not only the Jews or the Muslims, it's nothing to do with your pain and you will never meet your daughter again. And luckily that we are human beings. I learned that we are human beings and it's very easy to lose our humanity. Then we became the most dangerous animal on earth. And you can see in many places that even the animals feel shame what we are doing to each other as human beings. I met the victim who killed my daughter after three years in the Israeli court and I call him a victim because he's a victim. 
and have the chance to talk to him, I told him that I need you to know that you are not a hero, you are not a warrior. You didn't kill the enemy or the terrorist, you just killed 10 years innocent girl. And if you think it's okay to kill my daughter, enjoy your crime. I don't ask for revenge because I don't take revenge from victims. You are the real victim and you are not less victim than your own victim. I can do it because I feel that I am more stronger than him. He's a victim. And when you are able to forgive, you must be stronger. Otherwise, it's to give up, not to forgive. It's a huge difference. Uh, I told him in the future, if you think that once you committed to a crime and you come to ask me to forgive you, always you will find me there. I will forgive you. Not because of yourself, because of myself. Because I love my daughter very much. And because I want to protect my family and my son. My son in that time was 13 years old and he wants to take revenge. So it takes a few years until he understands that this is not the way. Directly I joined the parents' circle, the bereaved families, Israelis and Palestinians, because I know them before, to try to spread a very simple message. First, we have the moral authority to raise our voices as victims that we don't want more blood in the name of our kids. If we want more blood, more revenge, we need to prepare our other kids to die. So we cannot, we don't, didn't achieve anything, just more blood. Israelis and Palestinians have no other choice just to exist and to live together on this piece of land. Whatever we claim, it's Palestine, or if it's Eretz Israel, is the promised land, or it's Islamic land, we need to live together as one state, two states, five states, whatever. Otherwise, we will share the same land as two big graves to our kids and our peoples. Thank you very much. Um, hi. I just um, was thinking as I was sitting here, how perhaps what is in your mind, you know, and I would ask you one small thing, and that is to take your political opinions your religion, the things you think you believe in, and just put it next to you on the chair, and let's talk to the heart. It is so easy to be pro-Israel or pro-Palestine, and I'm sure it makes you feel very good about yourself. The problem is it doesn't help us. What you are doing by taking a stand of being pro-Israel or pro-Palestine is you are importing our conflict into your country and creating hatred between Jews and Muslims. And this, if there's nothing else that you take away with yourselves tonight, I give you this to think about. We have looked, all, I travel together with Bassam and other partners all over the world, and this is becoming more and more prevalent wherever you go, is the pro-Israel, pro-Palestine idea. And um, if you can't be part of the solution, I would really ask you, to leave us alone. I really ask you that. So I was also thinking as I was sitting here about survivors. What makes people survive terrible tragedies in their lives? Um, my life goes back, the beginning of my life was in South Africa, as you probably can hear from my charming accent. And I was thinking, I'd, I spent nine weeks now in San Diego in a peace program at the university, and people came to write our story. And I started to look into my background, into what creates a person who survives and what creates a person who makes social justice decisions at a very early age. And I remembered that when I was five, I stole a horse. And because the horse was being beaten by the dairy, and I brought it home and put it in my tennis court. And of course, my father came home and found a horse in the tennis court. He was not very impressed. But it shows something of social justice. It's so, it shows that I couldn't accept South Africa in many ways. And so I spent most of my life um, in the anti-apartheid movement and trying to make sense of something that was totally impossible. And if you would have told me when I came to Israel in 1967 that blacks and whites would sit in the same room and not want to kill each other, I actually would have said you were mad. But the fact is, that's what happened. 
a miracle happened for South Africa. It's no Garden of Eden now. But never the, and please, don't imagine for one minute that there's anything that's like instant reconciliation. We'll all fall into each other's arms and love each other. It's going to take generations, but there is hope. And if this could happen in, in South Africa, why not for us as well? And so when the army came to tell me that David had been killed by a Palestinian sniper, David was my son, one of the first things that I said is, you may not kill anybody in the name of my child. I didn't know that, but I was told this by the people afterwards because you have no idea what you are doing, because that is the worst, most dreaded news that any mother or father or family can get. And there is a very big blank period in my life when that happened. But it was apparently the beginning of a kind of a pilgrimage almost. I knew immediately that this man did not come to kill David because he was David. If he had known him, he could never have killed him. David was a student at Tel Aviv University, something like you, but you're a lot younger. You have the luck of not having to go to the army. And he was studying for his master's in the philosophy of education. And he was the student leader, much like you, and led the uprising. And we used to plot in the mornings, very early, four o'clock in the morning, how to get the journalists to come. And we burned tires together and did terrible things. But he was my best friend. And um, so I knew immediately that I wanted to do something for other parents, for other families. Sorry. Um, so that they would not have to experience this feeling and it destroys the family. It destroys the friends. All of these deaths have a rippling effect. The death of Basam's daughter has a rippling effect in the community. Don't imagine that it's just one thing and, you know, you read in the paper, five soldiers were killed. Those five soldiers all had mothers. They all had fathers. They all had girlfriends. And the rippling effect is what happens. So... I, did, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do, but I did know that I would do something. Um, when David was called to go to the reserves, um, as most young Israeli men have to do during up till the age of 40, he came to talk to me. And he said, look, I don't want to serve in the occupied territories. I told you he was part of the peace movement. Um, but if I don't go, what will happen to my soldiers? because he was the officer, and what will happen to the students that I'm teaching, because he was teaching philosophy to um, young kids who were social leaders who were going to be inducted into the army. And if I do go, I will treat people with dignity, and so will all my soldiers. So please don't for one minute imagine that you know who the person is behind the gun. You don't. And the quandary that a young man has about should he go when he doesn't believe in that, when he's part of the peace movement, and when he signed the officer's declaration that he wouldn't spend any time in the occupied territories, here comes a really difficult decision to make. And I realized only afterwards, sometime later, that actually he had, when I was giving a talk in Tel Aviv, um, there was a Palestinian sitting in the audience, and I could see that he wanted to tell me something. And um, at some point after the talk, I went to ask him, what is it? And he said, um, the day before your son was killed, I drove through the checkpoint and this beautiful young man came to talk to me. And he said, um, I have to check your papers. It's my duty, I'll do it as fast as I can. It's like paying income tax. And they got into a conversation. And actually, he said, when I heard the next day that your son had been killed, I was so sorry. So, that is the essence of the work that we do in the parent circle. The essence is when you recognize the humanity of the other. That is the beginning of the end of conflict. 
think about that. What creates terrible conflicts between people? It's not knowing each other. It's the fact that you are fearful of the unknown. And so a religious Jewish man came to see me, and he said, um, I want to invite you to come to a weekend of Palestinian and Israeli bereaved families. And I said, no, thank you. And I didn't want any more bereaved families around me. I had enough for myself. And he said, I really want you to come. And he's even more of a bulldozer than I am, and that's difficult to find. And um, I came to the seminar in East Jerusalem, and I met Palestinian mothers who'd lost children. And I recognized something extraordinary, and that was that we shared the same pain. And once I recognized that, I thought we could be the most incredible force to make a difference if we could join forces and talk together on a stage, like Bassam and I, in the same voice. And I started to travel all over the world, and I thought I was a really big deal, and I spoke in the Congress and the House of Lords. I'll just tell you one strange aside about that House of Lords. They gave us a piece of paper when we came in, very British, everybody was terribly British, and there was a line down the middle of the paper, and on the left-hand side were the pro-Israeli lords, and on the right-hand side, the pro-Palestinian lords with pictures, just in case we couldn't work it out. So I was rather pleased that I was no diplomat and no politician, so I can say what I like, who's going to fire me? So I said to them, look, I don't actually understand what you think you're doing. You will wave your wand, and uh, because you are pro-Palestinian, and another six million Jews will be gone, and you will wave your wand because you're pro-Israeli, and say three and a half million Palestinians will disappear, and those living in the diaspora will have a memory loss. So it's what I said to you. If you cannot be part of the solution, please leave us alone. You are importing our conflict into your country, and that's what's happening all over England today, is the hatred and the xenophobia and the hatred between Jews and Muslims. So that was part of what I was doing. I was working on the ground also in Israel and Palestine and going into schools and meeting kids. The average Israeli um, 17-year-old has never met a Palestinian in his life. Imagine that. Imagine the fact that they'd never had a conversation or understood each other's language. And so I would come into a classroom with a Palestinian partner and say, who of you have ever met a Palestinian? And maybe one. And who speaks Arabic? Maybe one because the granny came from Iraq, you know? And who's been overseas? Almost the whole classroom. And so you begin to recognize that they don't know anything about the Palestinians. And so the Palestinian in the group starts to tell their story and it's the first time they're exposed to the humanity of a Palestinian, to the narrative of their life, of how they grew up, of who they lost, and that they got up maybe at four o'clock to come to the school because they had to cross a checkpoint. And most of these kids don't even know where the checkpoints are or where the occupied territories are, for that matter. And suddenly they see the humanity. And I'm not saying that they become Martin Luther King afterwards, but there is a sense of understanding of who's on the other side. And going into a Palestinian school, I went into a Palestinian school where all the girls were covered. It was a, a, a girls' school. And one of the kids stood up and she said to me, your son deserved to die. Now, the normal reaction to that is you get up and you walk out, right? because that would be... But I looked at her carefully, and it turned out that she too had lost family. And I asked her, how did your mother feel? And she told me, and how was your father and your brother, and how are you? And what color were the tears? And when I asked her what color the tears were, that was when she suddenly got it. And she got up, because who had this kid ever met in her life, apart from settlers and soldiers? I was the first Israeli that she met that wasn't in uniform and that wasn't living on, on stolen land. And she came and she hugged me, which was also very brave, you know, because she had become the hero of the classroom. And all these little stories that go along the line. So I was very busy with myself, thinking I was really quite 
something special. And then I came home one night and there was another knock on my door and it was the army. And they came to tell me that they caught the man who killed David. And that's when it became really difficult. You see, you can go around the world and you can talk about peace and reconciliation, but do you mean it? You really mean it? Now, what was I going to do with this man who was now in jail? And could I, in all integrity, talk about peace? And so, um, who doesn't sleep here? Who has problems falling asleep? Come on, you Swedes, be honest. Let's see, how many? Shall I give them my... Yes? All right. I have a special um, remedy for those who can't sleep. You go out and you buy the most boring book that you can find, preferably like something like the philosophy of Wagner's music. And you buy it not in your mother tongue. I promise you, one and a half pages after that, you're out. So I spent three and a half months doing that and not knowing what to do, because I didn't think I could do this work if I wasn't willing to find a completion with this man. So I wrote a letter to the family, and I told them who David was, and who I am, and the work we're doing in the parents' circle. And um, it was very interesting because that was the moment in my life that I gave up being a victim. It was like somebody took a stone out of my heart because I, had, I was now free, regardless of what happened. And two Palestinians from our group took the letter to the family, who were pretty shocked, as you must, can imagine. And um, they said they would give the letter to their son, which they didn't do, because I didn't understand the cultural nuances of what it was to live in a small Palestinian family, uh, village and be a family dependent on support from the municipality and from the Palestinian uh, authority. And so, of course, you know, after they, I delivered the letter, after the Palestinians delivered the letter, I was quite sure that I would get a letter back within one and a half minutes, and I was down in the post box and there was nothing. And there was nothing for something like nearly three years. And then I got a letter over the Palestinian wire, which was not exactly the kindest letter you can imagine. But because I was no longer a victim, it wasn't really so relevant what he said. His name is Thaya, and he said that he had killed David along with nine other people um, to free Palestine. But you see, I knew that when he was a small child, he'd seen his uncle very violently killed by the Israeli army. And he lost two brothers in the Second Intifada, in the Second Uprising. And so he went on a path of revenge. Of course, he didn't realize that there is no revenge. And now, um, so that made it, this realization of being free was the most amazing thing. And then I decided to go to South Africa and look at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and to see what lessons we could learn for Israel and Palestine, which is what we did. And I met the most incredible people in South Africa. And in fact, I forgot to tell you, but there are two people that you have to invite one day. Okay? And um, her name is Jin Foree. And she is a white South African Afrikaans woman whose daughter was killed by APLA, which is uh, the military wing of the African National Congress. And she went to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and she said to the people who killed her daughter, I forgive you. And I wanted really to know what she meant by I forgive you. So when we were in South Africa, I went to meet her. And she said, forgiving is giving up your just right to revenge. And I thought, wow, after I've spoken to imams and rabbis and, and priests and you name all the religious stuff, and nobody could come up with anything vaguely that spoke to me, but this was something that I could relate to and understanding why. And then um, after that, I met the man who'd actually sent these people to kill her daughter. And they together have an NGO today with ex-combatants. And he said, by your forgiving me, you have released me from the prison of my inhumanity. By your forgiving me, you have released me from the prison of my inhumanity. You might go away tonight 
and think to yourselves, what do I mean when I say I forgive? You know, it's a very, very difficult concept, but it's not a prerequisite in the parent circle. Because what we have as a long-term goal is to create a framework for a reconciliation process to be an integral part of any future peace agreement. Because we stood on the White House lawn, you know, Israelis and Palestinians, we hugged each other and ate hummus, but it had nothing to do with the people. It was a political agreement. And so, this, and so we have a ceasefire until the next time. I want to talk a little about the war and the things that we did, but I think we should... I'm very bad at timing. Huh? I can go on? All right, because I can go on until tomorrow morning, and then there will be... So um, I wanted to tell you, I, I think everything is very fresh from the last elections. By the way, how's the light? Let's have a look. And so we made this clip, which became viral, and has been shown all over the world to millions and millions of people, and won um, several prizes um, for social change clips. And are we doing it? Can you see it? So that was a very, very powerful statement to make. And we knew immediately that there was going to be a cycle of violence. It was very clear, you know. And so we started something called Peace Square. But I want to show you now. Um, I think we should really show them what we created for the elections. Peace Square was a square that we created in Tel Aviv just before the war started and during, right throughout the whole war. And up to September, every night from 7 o'clock till 10 o'clock, we sat in the square being abused by many people who were angry about the war, who came to tell us we were traitors and that we should go and live in Gaza and, you know, some other charming remarks. But also people who wanted to come somewhere and talk to people who had a like mind, who agreed with them. And what we discovered there was this great ability to listen. You know, we tend when there's somebody that you don't actually like or that you think doesn't have the same opinion as you, you don't really listen to them. And this is, makes them even more angry. And you have to include everybody in the conversation. Because if you don't, they will become more radical. And there was a settler there who came and he was sitting Mm, probably near to where the, those orange chairs are, screaming at us and telling us um, that he had been uh, lived on the border of, uh, of Gaza and he had lost one home, and now he lives in one of the settlements, which is one of the most messianic, difficult settlements with very, very difficult settlers who are there from uh, a sense of... Uh, um, biblical, almost, belief. These are not the settlers who came because the housing is cheap. There are several different kinds. It's not all one kind of settlers. And he was screaming at us, you know, and we just let him continue to talk. And this is very unusual because usually when that kind of thing happens, you walk off. You don't listen. And eventually we went to talk to him and I said, you know, I understand your pain. I understand what it is to lose a home. I live in Tel Aviv. I don't have to leave my home. But you should come to the table and be part of the conversation. And then I told him about David. The night before David was killed, he spent the whole night talking to a religious settler who came about the philosophy of Judaism. And they'd spent the whole night together, and sometime during the night, David got up to make coffee for his soldiers. And he said to David, why are you doing this? They should be making coffee for you. And he said, no, you know, I have to make coffee for them. They are, this is the team. And so the settler, after David was killed, wanted to come and talk to me, but he was a little frightened because there'd been a lot of interviews in the newspapers about what I felt about occupied territories. And he phoned me and asked if he could come and see me, and I said yes. And of course, and he came to tell me this whole story about David. And I told the settler how touched I was that this man had made this effort to come all the way from the settlements to tell me about David. 
and he started to cry, the settler. And he said, would I come and visit him? This is the whole thing about a conversation and about dialogue. Dialogue isn't about being right. It's actually about listening. And it's really difficult. And it's difficult for someone like me who has a tongue like a viper. But if you want to get to the heart, you know, it's easy to be right. But you don't always succeed with the being right. And that also goes together with all of the story of taking sides. So after uh, we sat there all the time with the sirens and, you know, I live in Tel Aviv and the rockets were already next to my house in Tel Aviv. And I ran downstairs into the shelter and there was a woman there with a little baby and she was holding her baby and the baby had a ball in its hands. And I looked at her and I thought, wow, we're so lucky. Think how insane this is. There are rockets outside my house and I'm in the shelter thinking how lucky I am. Why would that be? I suddenly remembered the mothers in Gaza who had nowhere to run. If they left their homes, they might have been bombed and killed. And if they left their homes, maybe the Hamas would kill them. And if they ran to UNRWA, perhaps they would also have been bombed there because there were rockets being shot out of the UNRWA schools. And so who are the ultimate victims of war? women and children. And then I heard a mother from Sterot, which is an Israeli town, just on the Gaza border. And she said, I have three children. One is in a wheelchair. And I have 15 seconds to get to the, to get to the shelter. And I don't know who to take. Do you see this lunacy? For what? And so then the elections, you know, there was a huge campaign. Actually, today, they're supposed to be swearing in the government. Well, um, we tried very hard and this is what we created for, for the elections. It's called the Monument to the Future Victor Victims of the Conflict. So that was the Peace Square. And now we'd like to show you um, the future victims for the election. This is what we created for the elections. We just happen to be very lucky. We've got a wonderful um, advertising agency called Sachi and Sachi, and they love us, and so they make all this work for us, which is amazing. Pro bono. So I think it's time for question and answer. Yes, and the difficult questions for Bassam. You're listening to Studentaftonpodden. We will now continue with questions from the audience. You were asking us to stay out of the conflict. Uh, no, I wasn't. No, no you, but you told us. What, what, what did you say then? <laughs> I told you don't take sides. Okay. I said be part of the solution. You Let answer, me answer please. Um, however, um, I just, I'm curious, what do you think of uh, Sweden's decision, decision to recognize Palestine as a state? She said very clearly. Don't be pro-Israelis or don't be pro-Palestinians. But you must be pro-justice, humanity, human rights for everyone. You can support the Israelis to get their security by ending the occupation. If you, you cannot be pro one side against the other side. This is how you import the conflict to your place, to your country, to your neighborhood. At the same time, it's complicated, but it's very clear. Martin Luther King says, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. So at the same time, don't keep silence. Because to keep silence while a crime is committed, it's also a crime. You need to be against injustice and pro-justice and peace. It's the first and the moral country who recognize Palestine as a state. It's honor to Sweden because uh, it's honest with, with themselves, with your people, with your government. Because in Palestine, we don't have oil, we don't have gold, we don't have, I don't know, we have nothing. We just have morals. So it's a moral recognition uh, for Palestine as, as a state. And I think this is the way how we can achieve uh, uh, political pressure of the Israeli government to recognize Palestine. So thank you for that. 
I'm I'm studying st social innovation in digital context from Lund University. I'm also a, a journalist by profession. This question goes uh, for you first from the Palestinian side. Uh, of course, there is anger and you know with the Jewish occupation, Israeli occupation. But how does how do the Palestinian people see you know uh, how has Hamas fared in terms of governing Palestine? Uh, how has been, I mean, have they met their expectation in terms of, uh, you know, what they kind of took charge uh, uh, to see through? Have they, I mean, how, how, do, how do Palestinians beyond war see Hamas? And uh, for you is, I mean, just had your elections that got over and Netanyahu is probably, is, is actually back in power. Uh, has, it, has it, I mean, more of a pessimistic question, if I may say so. You know, has it really changed on ground in terms of uh, people's uh, aspirations or people's expectations about, you know, the way they look at future politics of Israel and Palestine? Because looking at Netanyahu's victory, uh, it seems like the country is moving more towards the right-wing extremist side. Have really, as the new generation that's coming up, uh, are they being, becoming much more extremist towards uh, their enemy? The Palestinian received Hamas as part of the Palestinian resistance against the Israeli occupation. And the Israeli occupation, it's a good reason for Hamas and other people to continue the struggling and fighting against the occupation. So we cannot consider Hamas as a terrorist organization because we are under the occupation. Uh, we have terrorist attacks. Yes, when you kill civilians, they are civilians. When you kill uh, uh, ordinary people, it's a crime. It's a terrorism. When you attack or f uh, resist yourself, uh, protect yourself against the occupation, you are part of the Palestinian resistance. And as I said, it's very difficult to consider Hamas from the Palestinians as a terrorist organization. Because you cannot ask the victims to behave in a good way while they are under the occupation. It's the responsibility of the occupiers to end their occupation. You cannot continue the occupation and expect from me to act in non-violent. Why? I hope you understand me. It was very disappointing, the elections. But now more than ever, we need support for peace movements on the ground. Not only for the parents' circle. I mean, the parents' circle does a huge amount of work, mainly because we're accepted on both sides. But we cannot afford to give up hope. And yes, it's probably the most, it's not probably, it is the most right-wing government that we've ever had. Um, but that doesn't mean I will ever give up. This is not a job. This is your life, you know? And by the way, don't think for one minute that our lives are not intertwined. What will happen to us will affect you and vice versa. And so we have to continue. And I, I have three grandchildren and, and for me, how can I look into their eyes and think that I gave up? No way. And um, hopefully, you know, the, this government will, has a very, very small majority. They tried, I don't even know what happened since I came here because they delayed the swearing in of the government by two hours. I think there was some more heckling going on and, and it's quite frightening. And I'm hoping, I'm looking at, firstly, it's very important to know that the parents' circle is not affiliated to any political party. Of course, we're all political people. But on purpose, we don't affiliate to any political party. Um, all of us are aligned to getting out of the occupied territories. Because even if, for me as an Israeli, I think the occupation is killing the moral fiber of Israel. You cannot occupy a country for so many years and not expect it to affect who you are and it is affecting our country. There's more domestic violence than there's ever been. There's more violence in schools, and more people are killed on the roads in Israel than in the conflict. So one might start to look for reasons for that. And I'm not saying it's only the occupation, but it's a very big factor in, in what is happening to the morals of my country. And yes, the youth are becoming more radical. That is true. But there are also many, many people and organizations, both Palestinian. You know, there was a wonderful demonstration um, that I went to uh, at the Kalandia checkpoint. It was on the 8th of March, which is International Women's Day. 
And, you know, people always say that, where are the Palestinians? They don't, they don't want peace. So we were about 500 Israeli women, and a thousand Palestinian women came walking from all parts of the West Bank to the wall. And we started to shout at each other over the wall, you know, to talk to each other over the wall. It sounds insane, doesn't it? And then the Israeli army uh, shot us with uh, tear gas. It's difficult, but you cannot give up. You know, it, it's okay for people who, who don't live there, but I will never give up. Uh, you, you were talking about the conflict being brought here, uh, or, well, abroad. Uh, and Swedish television made a show about the conflict, or, well, the show was really about Jews being suppressed, especially in Malmö. Um, and my question is really, how, can, how do you think we as a society can work with this problem uh, in a more effective way? You know, we had this extraordinary meeting this afternoon with an imam from the mosque. What's his name? I'm sorry. Salahdin Bakal. Yes? And he's probably one of the most enlightened people I've met in a long time. And he's doing some extraordinary work and uh, with interfaith work. And I think, I can't imagine anything more remarkable than any act of violence that happens either to Jews or Muslims. There's enough xenophobia here too against the Muslims. If you stood up together, Jews and Muslims, against any uh, violence here, and also in Israel and Palestine, instead of standing on two sides of the road, fighting about who's pro what. It would be very, very interesting if you went to the newspaper, where's that journalist over there? Wouldn't you be willing? It's hard for journalists in many cases to cover anything that isn't dramatically violent. But in this case, if you would start some kind of a movement of students who would start to really be part of this solution also within your own community, which is pretty bad as well, I believe. So being in touch with this man who told us that he's starting a kind of a cooking class for Muslims and Jewish young people from 18 to 25, something like that, so that they can exchange passages from the Bible and, you know, I'm not very good at that kind of thing, but I think that those are the sort of things that when you get to know the people in your community and who live next door to you and you don't close yourself down to them, is how you can also support us by the same kind of behavior. It doesn't mean that you can't do things that are also very practical, going and talking to your politicians and, and seeing being part of the solution and supporting not only, I mean, yes, supporting money is very nice because we need that for the work that we do on the ground, but also to go into our Facebook and to the web pages and see what's happening and see how you can contribute to it. And I asked, are there any women here who run in marathons? What is the matter with these Swedes? They don't do any exercise. Where are the women who run here? Okay. So... Um, we have a project with Palestinian women um, who make birds. If you look at my shoes, I can't pick my leg up, it's a bit sort of rude. But if you look at my shoes, you'll see a bird, and that's a symbol of taking, it's called taking steps. And if you run, you can get a small bird to put on your shoe with laces that would say taking steps. And then you would say, I am running for, the woman I'm running for is. And it could be one of our group or it could be one of, um, of, of the people who died in Denmark or Paris or Sweden, and you take a picture of yourself and you send it to a Facebook page. And we want people, or they can get shoes if they don't run, and do the same thing. And it's a statement which we're building up for the next year on the 8th of March, which is International Women's Day. So if you go into our Facebook page or, or um, the website, you can find we will soon have the shoes and the patches. That's what we're working on. And it also helps to increment the income of Palestinian women. I'd like to ask you, both of you, what you think of the ship to Gaza uh, strategy? 
You know, it goes with the same, uh, the same question. Like, who agree with the occupation from you? Or who is against the occupation? Somebody with the occupation? So anyone can criticize Israel because of the occupation freely? Be honest with me. Say no. It's difficult. In some place, it's a crime. There is a, 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 a tough laws in Europe. And this is the problem. Because you want to do something, but you are not allowed to criticize Israel. Because of the past, because of the Holocaust, especially in Europe. They are allowed to continue occupying us because of the past. Past is past, it's over. The Holocaust is over. And this is what I said when you keep silence. It's part of the crime. Remember, to criticize the occupation of Israel, it's not anti-Semitism. Otherwise, you will keep silence, we will continue suffering, and you will be against your values, your humanity, your own humanity, and your own values. I think it's part of the political and uh, uh, media pressure to raise awareness about what the Palestinians in Gaza suffering. It's the biggest jail on earth with two million human beings, people. They are not allowed to go anywhere without permission. There is no permission. They are in a huge jail. So it's the responsibility of the world to broke this siege. It's a very moral and political and media thing, again, to raise awareness as long as uh, Sweden recognizes Palestine as a state. This is in the political level and also goes with the human level. And it's non-violence. So we support any step with non-violence means against the brutality and the occupation and the violence. If it's also difficult, so we, you will keep us with, with no uh, options. The Palestinians are very disappointed. And we are not going to pay the price of your silence and the Israeli fear forever. It might also be a good idea um, to pressurize Egypt to open its doors too, because it's a prison from both sides. Absolutely. Yes. And um, people tend to forget about that. It's like, also, nobody seems to mind very much that more than 200,000 Syrians have died. Or, for instance, that the Yazidi people, of women, are being raped and murdered and sold as slaves. Why is the world not concerned with those problems? It seems to me to be very sad. I'm not saying that I condone anything in Israel that Israel does with the occupation. Don't get me wrong. But yes. it seems to be, for me, I wish the world would also pressurize Egypt to open up the borders, to allow... Nothing comes in from Egypt, and at least goods come in from Israel. Not that I'm condoning that either. So think about it from that angle. Maybe you make a flotilla to Egypt too. So my question is, um, why do you think it's so hard for uh, leaders uh, of Israel and Palestine to adapt this way of thinking that you presented to us today? It's an easy one. I will answer <laughs> Go for it, baby. You know, when we say the Palestinians and the Israelis, we are not the same. We are not in the same level. It's not the Palestinian president and the Israeli president. My president need a permission to move from one city to another city exactly like me. So it's not a real president. The Palestinian government, it's not a real Palestinian government. Of course, we need leaders from both sides, but it's more for us. We need to have a, an Israeli leader. Unfortunately, we don't have a brave Israeli leader. He can look forward. The problem with Netanyahu and people like him, they are stuck in the past. 3,000 years and the Holocaust, which is very easy to control the people's fear. We need someone to look forward and make this peace. I just, it's like a romantic uh, meeting. I want to share with you this few, uh, uh, it's a song for Mahmoud Darwish, it's a Palestinian poem. He says, think of others. As you prepare your breakfast, think of others. Don't forget to feed the doves, or the doves. As you conduct your wars, think of others. Don't forget those who want peace. As you go to pay your water bill, 
think of others, of those who have only the clouds to drink from. As you go home, your own home, think of others. Don't forget the people of tents. As you sleep and count the stars, think of others. Don't forget those who have no place to sleep. As you speak freely, think of others, of those who lost their right to speak. As you think of others, distant others, think of yourself and wish you are a candle in the darkness. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Studentaftonpodden, a collaboration between Studentafton and Radio AF. More of our podcasts are available on iTunes and RadioAF.com. 